Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. The world watched in fascinated horror as the U.S. Capitol was stormed by protesters this week. I really want to address this on the podcast, and I couldn't be happier to have uh, an American on the podcast today uh, for the first time on this pod, whose name has to remain a secret. He is a serving military officer. He has a huge following on social media under the name Angry Staff Officer. He is, as everybody knows, who follows him online, he's a, a brilliant historian. He's a fascinating source information about the US military, US history, and Star Wars. He's obsessed with Star Wars. He and I have been communicating over the years. We've become firm friends, and this was the first time that we've been able to meet, albeit via the internet, thousands of miles apart. I asked him about the history of insurrection in the US, and he wanted to share with me one very particular moment of, of insurrectionary history that occurred in Maine at the end of the 19th century, involving one of the most remarkable soldiers, scholars and statesmen in US history. This is a, a rambling chat recorded late, late at night as the events in Washington, D.C. unfolded. If you wish to uh, watch history documentaries alongside listening to podcasts, please do so at historyhit.tv. It's our new digital history channel. It's like Netflix for history. We've got hundreds of hours of documentaries on there, the world's best historians, dealing with history from the Iron Age right up until the present day. We've got a special introductory offer on at the moment. If you use the code January, January at checkout, you get a month for free. You can check it out all for free, and then you get 80% off your next three months of subscription. That's 80%. So you're getting four months for just a few cents, a few pence, uh, a few fennigs, if those are still in use anywhere in the world, uh, every month. So please do go and check that out. That takes us through to post-vaccine, everyone. We can get back outside. We can celebrate. We can hug. In the meantime, everyone, please enjoy this interview with the anonymous but very brilliant angry staff officer. Hey, buddy, it's great to have you finally on the show. It is absolutely terrific to be here. We've been messaging for so many years. We've been in touch. We've been friends for years, but we haven't talked before. I'm kind of nervous now. We're actually finally talking. 
I, I like to call this the great Anglo-American bromance, uh, I think is, is the most accurate way to portray this. Uh, and, and likewise, I'm, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm speaking with a legend and uh, I'm not sure, should I be standing at attention? I, I don't know. So I'll just, uh, I'll just have another drink of a gin and tonic. Well, I don't know, more appropriate. I think you should be uh, citing artillery batteries with uh, lethal effectiveness somewhere, somewhere north of Albany. <laughs> so, dude, you know, we were in, in close contact uh, as we watched the assault on the Capitol, I can only imagine what was going through your head as an American, as a citizen, as a as, as a serving soldier, and as someone steeped in American history. What I mean, what was going through your head, and also what what bits of history have you been have you been reaching for in the last days and hours? Well, I think like most people, I was obviously shocked. Um, you know, you don't. You see the Capitol building, you visit it, standing outside, uh, you know, I, I, I assume you've, you've stood outside in that building. It's, it's such an imposing edifice. It is a very literal translation of U.S. power, of U.S. Uh, dignity, of, uh, and, and just sort of this, this awe-inspiring building. I mean, it is very much in the way of, of the old cathedrals. Of You go in and go, oh, wow. <laughs> Uh, and it, it inspires you to, um, at least for me, whenever I visit, it's just this space of, you know, I should be a better American. I should be, you know, I should be a more virtuous citizen in the lines of, uh, of uh, you know, the, as, as some of the, the founders uh, thought about, the, about virtue. And so, of course, seeing that space um, violated, overturned, broken into, my first reactions were very visceral, um, very, lots of anger sadness, grief, shock. And then as I sort of, I've been processing through it all and I go, all right, we are, we are a hopeful nation. We are a nation of those who, who overcome. Uh, And so as I sort of think about that, um, I go, you know, obviously, as you say, we, we look back in time for those anchor moments, for those anchor points in history. So that way we kind of feel like, uh, we have something to hold on to, something to guide by. And there, there's, goodness, there's no shortage of insurrections in American history. <laughs> um, we barely, we'd barely uh, gotten away from the, uh, um, the, you know, the lovely, the lovely British, uh, your, your folks, uh, <laughs> uh, before we'd uh, then decided to turn on ourselves with a couple different rebellions, uh, you know, the Whiskey Rebellion and several others, usually... Um, small farmers um, protesting against uh, what they saw was an overreach of, of government power. Those drove us from the Articles of Confederation, a flawed, weak document, really, that was just uh, too much compromise and, and no teeth, uh, to, to the Constitution, developed uh, in 1787, which is a, a remarkable document. And so we, we've had these moments that have driven us and shaped us, uh, that the, the of course, our largest insurrection was the Civil War, which resulted in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments that began to slowly move away from the horrors of slavery and what we'd done as a nation uh, to keep people enslaved. But uh, there, there's so much caught up in that. There's so much emotion in that. And honestly, my first thoughts were to um, someone who I sort of I don't know. I've gone to him for sort of guidance, for historical guidance, uh, ever since I, I think I I saw the movie Gettysburg when I was nine or ten, 
and um, the great portrayal of uh, by by uh, Jeff Daniels of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Well, his father wanted him in the uh, the military. His mother wanted him a minister. He ends up uh, becoming a professor of rhetoric uh, and and revealed religions at Bowdoin College uh, in Maine. Uh, for the for those who aren't familiar of what the state of Maine is, it's a um, it's a place that's north of Massachusetts and south of Canada, and is not either of them, but uh, is often confused for both. But he uh, born in eighteen twenty eight, and uh, uh, yeah, remarkable figure. He. He learned seven, he could speak seven languages, uh, one of which was Aramaic, which is shocking, to say the least. <laughs> uh, Hebrew, so he's quite fluent in the ancient languages. Not the person that you would consider to be a future war hero, but when war does come, and he, he requests a leave of absence from Bowdoin College to, uh, to go off and fight. And they say, no, you're a professor of religion and rhetoric, man. What are you doing? You can't do that. And uh, so he puts in a request to go on a sabbatical to Europe. And uh, they grant it. And then he goes off and enlists in the U.S. Army. <laughs> Becomes lieutenant colonel of the 20th Maine Regiment. And uh, just a year or so later, uh, during the fateful Battle of Gettysburg, he and the 20th Maine Infantry are posted on the extreme left flank of the, the U.S. line attacked by two enemy regiments, outnumbered, outgunned, eventually runs out of ammunition and makes a very fateful decision. Uh, this professor turned turned combat leader decides, you know, he's got a couple options at hand. One is, you know, retreat. Uh, that would seem to be this the thing that would make sense. Uh, the other is stay and sort of gradually die in place. That doesn't make sense. Uh, and then the one that that makes sort of least sense, but also sort of makes a crazy amount of sense, is to attack, uh, and which it, that's what he does. Uh, now, there's a lot of debate on just exactly how uh, studied that was, but at the end of the day, he, he orders uh, an assault. Uh, they sweep down the hill uh, with bayonets only, driving the enemy before them, capturing many prisoners, uh, saving that portion of the Union line, uh, and possibly saving the, the U.S. Army that day, and possibly the United States. Who knows? Well, Chamberlain gets high praise from you. I mean, he's surely one of the few infantrymen that this uh, exacting engineer regularly praises on social media. I mean, he does, and he gets the Medal of Honor for this later in life. But then this this remarkable man, he, he was leading his, he, he gets promoted, he has brigade command at the Siege of Petersburg in 1864, and he's making the assault, he gets hit, um, now, and I, I know you know this, but, uh, you know, if you are... Sh Anywhere, in, anywhere, really before the um, you know, early 1900s, if you're gut shot, uh, your your chances are are not good. Um, and so he was uh, he was shot through the uh, thigh, groin, and intestines, and uh, hold, held himself held, held himself up on his sword until his brigade had passed, so that way his men would not see him fall. Finally, did fall. Was given up essentially for dead because. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's so many infections and, uh, and su in such a bad time. And it's only because his brother and the regimental surgeon intervened and uh, the regimental surgeon performed sort of exploratory surgery on the guy, uh, an experimental surgery, and were able to patch him up. And within about four months, 
which is incredible. He's back leading troops again um, to the to the end of the war. But that isn't why I thought of. I mean, that's I always think of him because <laughs> who who can't admire that type of that type of courage? He, he, but he arrives home to Maine. He's quite a hero. He uh, is governor of Maine for four terms. He is president of Bowdoin College. By 1880, he's in his fifties, and this is sort of this is where. My mind went as I saw people storming the steps of the Capitol. There's this moment. It's the, uh, the election of 1880 in Maine and uh, very contested. The incumbent governor claims irregularities at the polls and refuses to vacate office. Uh, the incoming governor, uh, the, the one who, who won the vote, uh, protests the the state senate the the senators get involved and everybody sort of appeals to Chamberlain. Now at this time he's uh, he's a major general in the state militia. It's an honorary t- honorary title because of the the man that he was, but it does mean he's the commanding general of the militia. And so both sides are saying, hey, you know, we need the militia to come in here and settle this because both sides are also arming. Uh, the the in fact the the incumbents the incumbents supporters are armed and inside the state house. Now, there are many moments across American history where this has sort of happened, and uh, the armed groups have have fought it out, um, and there has been bloodshed. Chamberlain arrived on the scene, and no one could have blamed him if he called up the state militia, secured the area, uh, basically sort of put everything into martial law uh, as as things were really verging on a civil war. It was that it was that close, but he arrived, and he elected to not call up the militia. He said, whoever first says take arms has a fearful responsibility on him. And I don't mean it shall be me who does that. And which, which is just such a perceptive and, and brave thing to say. Not resorting to that draw of power. Um, and he manages to convince, again, this is, this is what happens when you have a guy who with a, you know, he's been a professor of rhetoric. That means using words to get people to do things, you know? And uh, so he convinces them to, uh, the, the governor and his supporters to, to vacate the state house. And for 12 days, he holds a vigil there alone. He has, uh, he does have, uh, the Capitol Police are nearby, and uh, he does have uh, his son actually go and fetch his Civil War pistols for him just in case. But um, there are threats on his life. Both sides attempt to bribe him, um, saying, hey, choose me, and I will, you know, we'll make you a, the senator. Uh, and uh, he resists. He says he uh, remains firm, saying, my main object is to keep the peace and to give opportunity for the laws to be fairly executed. He was waiting for the state Supreme Court to make a decision to, you know, to, to carry out the laws of the land. And um, it's sort of at the height of this crisis that a mob assembles in front of the state house, angry, furious, an aide rushes in to tell Chamberlain that they, there are men outside who want him dead, who are calling for his death. This is a war hero. This man is, is one of the greatest heroes that the state has ever had. And here there are people calling for his death. And there are people in the newspapers who are riling up, um, riling citizens up on both sides saying, you know, he has to go. He is stopping. He is stopping the, uh, the cause of justice. 
And there's this amazing, incredible moment, and I would love to see it depicted on film, although I don't, I don't know if you could do it justice, where Chamberlain walks out, he paces down the steps of the, the, the state house, and he looks at this assembled group, um, somewhere between 50 and 100 men. And he says this, Men, you wish to kill me, I hear. Killing is no new thing to me. I have offered myself to be killed many times, when I no more deserved it than I do now. Some of you, I think, have been with me in those days. You understand what you want, do you? I am here to preserve the peace and honor of this state until the rightful government is seated, whichever it may be. It is not for me to say, but it is for me to see that the laws of this state are put into effect without fraud, without force, but with calm thought and purpose. I am here for that, and I shall do it. And if anyone wants to kill me for it, here I am. Let him kill. What do you say to that? <laughs> you're in the, you know, you're in that position. What? Uh, I, I just, what amount of shame must you feel when he says that? Uh, is all I can think. And and and, that, and this is what happens: is uh, a man jumps from the mob, interposes himself between Chamberlain and the mob, and says, "By God, old general, the first man that dares to lay a hand on you, I'll kill him on the spot." And, uh, and that sort of settles it. The, the mob shamefacedly walks away. And after this 12 days of, of sort of vigil, the state Supreme Court makes their decision. Uh, the laws of the land are carried out and Chamberlain is allowed to go home. And his reputation does suffer from it uh, because there are many who, who believe that he was, uh, he was interposing. But um, looking back on that, the force of character and moral courage and physical courage is stunning to me and something that i it, it just it struck me as i saw those crowds on the capitol steps going what there has to be there has to be another way there has to be where's the moral courage where is that that we look back at as americans in these moments of history, uh, those individuals who who step forward in times of crises, and uh, and I and I think it's hanging on to that that hope that hey you know things have things have been bad, <laughs> um, but we can bring something good out of this. You're listening to me talking to one of the most famous sappers on the internet, Angry Staff Officer. More coming up after this. How did Hitler's sexuality shape his worldview? Why did the Black Death lead to the rise of the witch trials? And what are some of the sauciest scandals involving kings and queens at Hampton Court? I don't know about you, but this is the history I want to hear about. If you do too, then join me, Kate Lister, every Tuesday and Friday to find out the answers to all of these questions and more. Listen to Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. 
The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, I mean, it's physical courage, isn't it? But it's also married to such an astute sense of what America is. You know, in the rest of the world, particularly back in the 19th century, it's the guys with the guns that rule. It's the guys with the holy book. It's the guys with the, the lineage who trace their, trace their family line back to the, the murky Middle Ages. But, but in America, they were trying to do something different. There was, there was a Republican there was a Republican project, and there still is, but... The, the events of this week and the events of you know the, the events you described with Chamberlain, I mean, it, it's difficult. It's a re- it's a really difficult thing. It is, yes. <laughs> that's that's the understatement. That's the understatement of the year, Dan. <laughs> it is so difficult, and uh, and God, I mean, it's all, it's a, so that's eighteen eighty. I mean, just uh, just four years prior, um, the United States fell to one of the gravest errors that I think the country has ever made, um, other than other than allowing slavery to persist past the founding and, and the Constitution. Um, because it, slavery was always, it was always, uh, you know, the great sin of the nation. You know, John Brown said it. He said, um, you know, this is the, this is the great sin and uh, it can only be paid for by blood. Um, which, and there's another insurrection, um, which, uh, which in, you know, ignited the nation further, a uh, you know a bleed over from or a really yeah a bleed over from bleeding Kansas, the crisis that was happening in the Kansas territories for whether it was going to be free state, a free soil or another home for chattel slavery. I think a, a lot of people don't realize, um, you know, they just think sort of John Brown went nuts and started killing people. I mean. The guy had members of his family killed um, for for standing up for uh, for a free state. Um, he watched other free staters get killed around him, um, and yes, then he went and executed people with broadswords. Um, there is, uh, but it, it, it's definitely a, a different story than I think a lot of people are taught. There's, it's there there are significant amounts of violence, um, but but in 1876 you have this this horrible betrayal of. Of the four years that were the Civil War, uh, the the Republican Party makes a deal to um, to win the ele- to win the White House essentially, um, uh, electing Rutherford B. Hayes uh, on the condition that Reconstruction ends in the South. And Reconstruction is the most misunderstood, I think, period in American history because what you have is, for the very first time, you've got multiracial assemblies. You have, you have multiracial congressmen and and legislators, and all of a sudden, this 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 whole segment of people are experiencing what the Declaration of Independence says that all men are created equal, uh, and it's this ex, this heady time, this exciting time that gets undermined from within by 
white supremacy uh, through terrorism with the KK, the, the rise of the KKK, but the KKK was not the only one. There were multiple organizations. There were the Red Shirts um, in South Carolina. There were uh, these sort of paramilitary organizations that would clash with uh, the state militia, many of whom were African-American, fully African-American militias, representatives of the state government. And there was this open fighting and the clashing with federal troops. A lot of people don't know, uh, you know, you hear 7th Cavalry and you think, uh, George Armstrong, Custer, and poor decision making. There was a whole battalion of the 7th Cavalry that was garrisoned in the South doing counterinsurgency operations uh, against these uh, against these insurgents uh, during Reconstruction. And in 1876, this was all undermined through continued violence, through voter suppression uh, on a massive scale. And all of that eventually came to a head in 1876. Reconstruction was ended. The federal troops were pulled out. And uh, it would be, I believe, I think 1898 was when the North Carolina um, legislature sort of finally fell uh, to the, uh, the the white supremacists, which eventually became sort of the Jim Crow era, as we call it, this tacit alliance between um, uh, between whites to say, hey, yep, we'll we'll keep the status quo because it's good for everybody, um, but you know we're just not going to talk about uh, what happens with race, and uh, that's a really horrible horrible thing, um, and and we are still trying to recover from that. I think. Yeah, listening to you talk about Chamberlain, I'm I'm reminded of about the founders sort of obsession with Republican virtue. And I sometimes think that Republican virtue was a bit of a catch-all term when they couldn't work out a particular piece of the Constitution. They just thought Republican virtue would kind of plug the gap. Um, it made it do a little, they made it perhaps do a little too much hard work. Because it does strike me that despite the panoply of legal architecture that we talked about, it still does come down to officials like the Secretary of State in Georgia recently, officials behaving in the public interest. It always sort of it, it it does it does um and and we have to we have to sort of take the you know the founders with a with a a grain of salt um because you know I, I think I pointed it out on Twitter, but when we say the founders you know that's uh, somewhere around two hundred and fifty different people um because you have the people who crafted the declaration, the people who crafted the articles of confederation, which although flawed, they were our first sort of form of government uh, and then you have the the framers of the constitution. None of these people got along with each other. I might add, um, it was uh, uh, the the Constitution. I mean, if you, all you have to do is look at the the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers in American uh, history as a point of going, oh wow, yeah, no, there was a massive dissension there. Big piece of it was over slavery, but a big piece of it was the role of government. And uh, and I think I think yesterday a lot of us were were really thinking of that moment where. Um, in 1787, at the conclusion of the Constitutional Convention, when they finally come to a compromise, um, just, I mean, they've argued, they argued over everything, Dan, uh, the, the size of an army. Uh, you, you'd, think, you'd think that would sort of be free of, uh, of debate. Um, but, uh, you know, thanks to the, uh, thanks to the Redcoats and uh, <laughs> uh, the, the American populace had a very strong distrust of the standing army. But didn't Brit- Britain had a pretty strong distrust of a standing army? So I feel like I, I feel like we that was an inherited yeah yeah that was an inherited quality. There's these are the amazing arguments. Uh, you know, George Washington was the the 
president of the proceedings, and he just sort of sat there in his chair and listened, and probably going inwardly, going, "Can I be in Valley Forge again? Can <laughs> can we just fight the British again? It'll be so much easier." Listening to the wrangling on and on, and Elbridge Jerry, who's this crotchety guy from Massachusetts, is talking about how we should limit the size of the army to you know no more than three thousand, you know, in 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 the Constitution, and finally. Washington stirs in his chair this august presence, and he makes this grumbling aside of saying, well, maybe we should also add in there that any invading army be limited to 3,000. <laughs> uh, just this this monumental shade being thrown by this guy. But, um, yeah, it, you are right. There is this idea that is, it is the individual, and I think it, it's a big conflict right in government what's the role of the individual what's the role of the group you know what's the social contract that we make depending on your view whether you're sort of Lockean, hobbesian rousseauian whatever but you know they all come to the down to this idea of a social contract of this idea that we give up a certain individuality in order to to be part of a a society for you know for you know mutual protection common good yada yada um, but at the heart of it, none of that can work if the individuals are all incredibly selfish. The word militia, which some people around people around the world have have difficulty understanding, and it's used, I think, lazily by particularly by foreign journalists. What is the difference between a gang of armed people, a mob, and a militia? Because it's not semantics, right? It's not point of view. It's actually a, it's legally defined. Well, we get this from you guys. So, uh, and I get in arguments with people about it all the time because uh, you know the National Guard we we, we continue on the, the the militia heritage and tradition, and uh, the members of the, the Florida National Guard say, "Well, we were the first because we were with the Spanish." I say, "Nope, mm-mm, wrong, different militia tradition. It, the militia in England and uh, in Spain are, are very different." Um, it goes back to uh, really the 13th century, I believe, in one of the numerous assizes, the idea that the the role of the citizen um, to protect the state, um, but at the behest of the state. And so as the colonies developed, uh, they can, the, the, the British colonies in North America, they took on this tradition uh, for mutual defense, for, um, uh, for self-defense, and a very powerful idea uh, that got embodied in sort of the American mythos. But after the founding, uh, the Constitution, and then each state forming a constitution, it became embodied in law what the militia was. And the militia is the the citizen soldier. It is those who uh, are called up by the the government, by the, the state or local government, to carry out the laws of the land. And this is fascinating. We can look at uh, really at Lexington, uh, the engagement at Lexington. When Captain John Parker mustered his uh, company on Lexington Green, uh, awaiting for waiting the, the arrival of the, the light companies and poor Major Pitcairn, he was doing so as a representative of the uh, Lexington Committee for Public Safety, and, you, and which was a part of the basically the, the Massachusetts um, Committee for Public Safety or the, the Massachusetts body politic, the, the, the legislature, because the legislature had been dissolved by the crown. He was assembled on Lexington Green. He was on the green. He was not on the road. And th- that is a very powerful image because it says, I am here as a representative of my 
of the town selectmen, of my elected government, to keep the peace. That's it, to keep the peace. I'm not here to start a war. I'm not here to uh, be braggadocious. I'm here to keep the peace. He did not block the road to Concord. They could have just marched on by. But as it happened, uh, you know, there was a, a church in the way, the column got separated, light infantry went one way, Pitcairn went the other, and lost command and control, somebody shot, and here we are. But that's sort of the militia tradition as representatives of the civil elected body that uh, in most state constitutions state it that way. Who are the militia? They are um, currently, they're the National Guard, uh, the un organized militia um, are usually specified as those people who are eligible for military service who may be called up by the governor, by the elected civil authority, in the case of invasion, insurrection, yada, 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 you know, uh, zombie attack, whatever. Um, but that's what it, it's not just somebody who says, uh, I have decided I'm a militia, and therefore I am going to, um, you know, declare war on something or, or uh, you know, I don't agree with something, so therefore I'm going to deputize myself. No, it doesn't work that way. And the Constitution allots that power to the states as well. And then eventually through the development of federal and state law, and that's the important thing, this law continues to develop. It's codified as such as, uh, you know, the militia is the National Guard or some other entity that the state may authorize, but it has to be at the state government level. So when a group of people gets together and they're armed and they say, hey, we're a militia, no, you are an armed mob. You are not called up by the governor. You are not even called up by your town council. <laughs> uh, you are uh, aggrieved citizens who, you know, really should use your First Amendment right to uh, for your for your peti petition for redresses. So that's that's the critical difference, and uh, you know, no amount of uh, of gun totingness is going to change that. I didn't realize enough the essential link between the militia at Lexington Concord and the political entity that predates it that, that had been established in Massachusetts, at an, you know, at the sort of legal authority. It is. It absolutely is. And that's why the formation of, you know, you could call it a rump government in, in, in the colony of Massachusetts, you know, after the, the closing of the Port of Boston and uh, you know, the, uh, dissolving the legislature, putting in a, a just absolute authority to the governor, really through the crown. Or, or parliament, I mean, because I always say that the Declaration of Independence is a, is a breakup letter to King George, because everyone sort of was like, hey, look, parliament's mean, but the king wouldn't do this to us. He just wouldn't do this. It's a sort of shock. I mean, these are the people who in 1763 were drinking their heads off to the king. Uh, they loved him, uh, because, you know, they, what a great moment to be part of the British Empire. And then in, it was 12 years later, but that's a, that's a topic for another time. But Yes, it is absolutely important that these are these are representatives of an elected body, of a representative body, uh, who, who are carrying out uh, the laws of the land, not some, some group that is out to immediately begin a, uh, a military. It, they, were, they were there to, to keep the peace in Lexington um, and, uh, and had it, – it's, it's very interesting to think what would have happened had the light column just – continued marching down to Concord, you know, uh, you know, Parker, because Parker gave direct orders, you know, do not fire, let them pass. We are just here to, to keep the peace. Listen, buddy, listen, Sapper. Thank you very, very much. Dude. How, tell everyone how to find you and, and uh, how they can engage with your work. 
Uh, you can find me uh, tweeting at PPT Sapper um, or, or search for Angry Staff Officer and then angrystaffofficer.com uh, for the blog. And uh, you can check out the, the podcast that I did with my co-host Aiden Dobkin for uh, three seasons of uh, War Stories, which are um, you know looking at looking at the development of a couple of different technologies uh, that and uh, and tactics throughout warfare uh, over time uh, through the micro lens at the individual sort of the nitty-gritty level and then at the macro at the larger sort of perspective we had a lot of fun putting that together thanks buddy thanks for coming on the show uh, this has been an absolute pleasure dan and uh yeah let's do it again soon hi everyone thanks for reaching the end of this podcast most of you are probably asleep, so I'm talking to your snoring forms. But anyone who's awake, it would be great if you could do me a quick favour. Head over to wherever you get your podcasts and rate it five stars and then leave a nice glowing review. It makes a huge difference for some reason to how these podcasts do. Madness, I know, but them's the rules. Then we go further up the charts, more people listen to us and everything will be awesome. So thank you so much. Now sleep well. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.